everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? I hope right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring you the latest and most interesting uh, information in different areas of medicine. Uh, but just a disclaimer, as I always mention, please, this is not uh, a podcast intended to give you personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today, I want to discuss an area of medicine that has had a resurgence of interest, histamine. Specifically, how high levels of histamine or histamine intolerance seem to be adversely affecting more and more people. Many patients come to me for advice, you know, again, they know my background's in allergy immunology about histamine intolerance or mast cell activation. Mm -hmm. And many of them are following a difficult low histamine diet, which in a lot of cases, I'm not sure is really necessary. In addition, everybody has heard of antihistamines. Uh, and I'm sure at one point or another, somebody's taken a Benadryl, probably one of the most all-time best-selling medications of the century. But histamine is a pervasive molecule in our body. So the question to me is, is histamine a friend or a foe? My guest today, Dr. Alan Kaplan, is uh, really a superstar in the field. He's a well-known academic researcher and clinician in the field of allergy and immunology. He has dedicated at least a five-decade career to studying histamine, specifically in regards to chronic urticaria, which he was considered the, you know, the top expert in the country. He is the past president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, uh, the most prestigious society among the allergists. He also was for many years the chief of allergy at... Uh, Stony Brook uh, Hospital, I think now it's called Rensselaer, Renaissance, Renaissance uh, Hospital, and he was also their chief of medicine. And I think in the latter part of his career, he moved to the University of South Carolina's medical college. So he really has a wealth of knowledge on this area, and I'm just so excited to have him on the podcast. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Dean. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here uh, uh, with you. Uh, I, I can start maybe with some simple ideas with regards to the histamine, and then perhaps we can have some questions and sort of discuss various facets of it. Okay. Uh, but one of the, uh, in terms of friend or foe, I would have to say, in terms uh, of what we see and uh, uh, in the clinic and, and what we know about it, basically it's a foe <laughs> because there's not uh, uh, many instances uh, in, in which we know for sure. Uh, what the very low levels of histamine that do circulate, that we would consider normal, are really contributing. And part of the reason that we don't know the answer to it is there's no such thing as a patient who, who has histamine deficiency uh, as a result of some particular disease. There's, there's basically no such thing. But can I ask one question? This is important because this is, I was thinking about this a lot, and I thought, that, again, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, you know, histamine is obviously, I think it's in, ma obviously it's in mast cells and basophils as we right. both know. I don't know if it's in other cells, but it seems to me like a basic molecule. And and again, Dr. Kaplan, I always, when I think about a lot of these things, there always seems to be a reason. You know, the same way we have inflammatory yeah. chemicals like prostaglandins that probably warn, you know, first of all, warn our body to, you know, not overstrain something so we don't tear a muscle. So in, in all of your work over the years, did you really never came across where you said, gosh, histamine is doing this. Is it like a primary... Yeah. immune signaler, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Well, why don't we take, for example, yeah, sure. 
what what histamine what kind of symptoms we see what does histamine appear to do okay so when histamine uh, uh interacts with receptors for histamine uh, which is what antihistamines block right but when it interacts with them little blood vessels in the body uh dilate so that open up now if they did just that it would be helping blood flow in the microvasculature not the big arteries and veins but the little ones right. now I, I i could recite many other uh molecules that do the same thing and may be contributing to that but when you have too much histamine beyond a certain point and the vessel dilates beyond a certain point the area becomes red and because histamine then is let us say somewhat in excess uh, it stimulates nerve ending that are in the vicinity and when it does that you wish mm-hmm. so uh, you all know uh, that uh, histamine is is the major mediator the major molecule responsible for hives and hives of course is you could see in the skin so it's a good model uh, if well, when you say i'm going to interrupt again so when you say it's the major one is yeah. it because it's the last one to be you know like part of the line of things being stimulated because you know i again i know you know all this but i want my listeners to appreciate yeah. this and again obviously i've studied it over the years you know when you have like an allergic reaction you know and obviously the skin right. is, an, is an end organ where you can see that easily there are a lot of mediators that get released are you that saying that correct. Right. Are you saying that histamine is the most important or is Absolutely. it the last one? That's why it's important. No, it's the most important because it's it's rapidly secreted. So uh, uh, for the audience, I, I don't know about may, how uh, conversant they are, but mast cell is the main histamine con- containing cell in the body. Mm-hmm. And we have mast cells in almost every organ. But right. uh, that's, that's really important to know. You know, it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt there's mast cells in your heart. There's mast cells right. in your I know. tract. Uh, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, but there are certain areas where it is particularly prominent, and mm-hmm. one of those areas is the skin, okay. uh, and that's why it's easy to talk about it because you can see also the effects of it are visual, so you can actually see what's happening. So, how do we know, uh, for example, that if five different chemicals are released into the skin when a mast cell releases all its stuff? Right. Uh, it's it's actually uh, reverse reasoning in part, because if mast cell, if histamine were not the dominant molecule, an antihistamine wouldn't work. Right. And if you have if you have somebody uh, that has hives or urticaria is the term that we use. And we know there is a variety of prostaglandins, for example, to mention another group of molecule that are uh, released. And if they were prominent and you block them the hives would get better in fact they do not sometimes they get worse interesting so you so you're saying like i just went for the audience like you know they may have heard of like medications like singular which is used for asthma okay, so that would okay. that, that wouldn't work for hives that is correct okay, I, so I mean, that's important let, let us say that um uh, to, to 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 not be um uh, uh overly dogmatic but right. let's say that leukotriene, which is what uh, what you're talking about, let's say it contributes three percent. So mm-hmm. I would I would like completely ignore it, right? So if I say if I say it contributes nothing, yeah, it might be a slight exaggeration, but I can assure you 
that 90 plus percent of the problem is due to histamine, which is why high, high doses of antihistamine work to kill the itch and, and sometimes the lesion itself when you have patients with certain kinds of urticaria. Now you may require a, a, a particularly high dose of uh, antihistamine when you're dealing with skin because of the amount of histamine that is secreted. That's For example, uh, I have patients that have uh, allergic rhinitis, hay fever. Okay, only some of them respond only to antihistamine. They mean, may need uh, something else, like a, a nasal spray that has steroid. But be that as it may, um, if you give a, a, a particular dose of antihistamine, it provides a certain amount of relief uh, in the patient who has hay fever, uh, which we call allergic rhinitis, meaning an inflammation of the nose that's allergic. However, you may need three or four times that dose in order to kill a hive in the skin. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, 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 what you're trying to do is to get the ratio of the antihistamine to histamine to be greater. In other words, you want the antihistamine um, amount or concentration to exceed that of histamine. So the antihistamine binds to the receptor that receives histamine and blocks it. And therefore, the histamine is prevented from acting, and now you get relief from your symptoms. Let so, me ask you this too, because it's important. So, for the, again, the listeners, because yeah. a lot of times they'll come to me and stuff like that. Now, and and I know you know this, but I want to again try to understand it better. The like histamine is a hard molecule to measure, right? I mean, is the, the blood? No. It's very fleeting, or no? I mean, can you? No, if please. someone's worried about high histamine, can they yeah. go to the doctor and have that test ordered, or they have to have that in the urine? What's yeah. the best way to assess it? Here's the problem: the, uh, we in the laboratory measure it with these, but 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 the test for doing so is somewhat complicated. It's not routinely done in clinical practice. Hmm. Um, yes, of course, uh, uh, you have to catch it early. That is true. In other words, so there's a problem in, in timing. Uh, yeah, the histamine may be released in some process. And at some point, your blood level rises. That's when you want to catch it. But then it, it, it dis distributes throughout the, the body. You know, the, the, the blood volume is six liters. Uh, so that's a gallon and a half. So it's being diluted out. And then, um, uh, yes, it is excreted into the urine with a certain rate, and uh, it's also metabolized. So uh, one, one of the main metabolites of histamine is called methylhistamine. Mm -hmm. That's the body's way of getting rid of it. Right. So methylhistamine is secreted into the urine and can be measured there. Well, so again, so, for, for doctors that are in practice, let's say their not, list, I mean, not practical, not practical. Okay. Not practical. I mean, because I've seen, I've seen, a, I've seen rarely a patient that comes in and they show me a blood test that showed uh, a high either histamine. I'm not sure if it was plasma or serum, or it showed a high urine methyl histamine. And I'm yes, but it's rare, but it's yes. rare. Yes. But if it, if it's properly done, then it is, it's a useful marker. Now, where would I would use it? Uh, I, 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 tend not to use it, uh, we're talking clinical, not yes. research, right. um, for, for routine allergies, hay fever, asthma, urticaria, I don't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. But you could do it. We have now new, newer and better tests, but you know the disease systemic mastocytosis. Right. There, you are dealing with not over uh, something that stimulates mast cells secrete in a localized place, 
but you're really dealing with a proliferative disease um, that is it, it's it, it's cancer like in that right. so it's a hematological it's like a blood disorder yeah yeah and uh what happens in those instances is, is that there are now so many more mast cells in the body that you and I would consider normal and these abnormal mast cells also also become leaky uh, without necessarily having an obvious stimulus uh, uh they they leak stuff kind of all the time and therefore, if you collect the urine, let's say you collect the urine for 24 hours, that mm -hmm. is a routine test. People measure protein in the urine uh, in kidney disease, and they uh, and they collect a 24-hour urine. If you have this mastocytosis and collect a 24-hour urine and measure methylhistamine, it may be sky high, and it would help you uh, make the diagnosis. It might affirm a diagnosis that you're suspicious of, or, or in that sense, help you make it. Although we have uh, many other ways of diagnosing uh, systemic mastocytosis. But if we went back, you know, 20 and 30 years where we didn't know as much as we do now, that, that would have been um, uh, uh, a routine test that we would have done to assist us in making that diagnosis. Okay, I have to duel with you on this then, because this is really important. I know, because this is what my listeners really want to hear. They they know, they probably don't know too much about mastocytosis. It is a no, rare condition. A very rare. Right, one. but yeah. I will tell you, again, uh, being actively in practice, what, and uh, you are aware, has surfaced is this new diagnosis of mast cell activation. Oh yeah, that's a tough one. Okay, but I, this is where I want to go with this with you, because I, I have to tell you, I've seen a lot of cases of this now. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I always say, you know, unfortunately out of a disaster, something hopefully yeah. evolves, like out of COVID, I've seen a lot of patients uh, that have had what appears to be mast cell activation, because these are patients that prior to, to getting infected with COVID, or in some cases, the vaccine, it's rare, but I've seen it, yeah. where they developed severe food intolerances, they developed um, orthostatic hypotension with their blood pressure was going all over the place. A lot of very bizarre things that, again, maybe could be related to some other things. But, you know, yes. when you look at, you know, what's been defined now as this mast cell activation, it goes along with a lot of these. And Dr. Afrin up in, uh, upstate, you know, in Tarrington, New York, has been one of the leaders in researching that. And he's worked with uh, uh, Marianne. Um, Castellas at, at Harvard Brigham. I've yeah. talked to her on the podcast about this. Yeah. But what I want to ask you, that's why I'm going a little different directions. I've had Mariana on the podcast and she was fantastic. But in your work, I know I've seen chronic urticaria and stuff like that. I start to think that, you know, the chronic urticaria is almost like a mast cell activation. You know, we just didn't call it that. And so my question to you is, you know, again, in diagnosing these patients, they typically, you don't see elevated histamine, you don't see elevated something called tryptase, which you would in mastocytosis, the blood Correct. type, right? Correct. So, although, I, although some, don't forget, I think, first of all, conceptually, uh, uh, mast cell activation syndrome should be uh, viewed, regardless of us, the fact that we don't really understand the root cause, but the number of mast cells in the body is relatively normal. Right. Whereas in mastocytosis, you're, you're dealing with something that is tumor-like because the mast cells are proliferating. And the number of mast cells in the tissues of the body is very high. 
Right. And but you know, in, in a lot of the beautiful articles that I've seen in the last few years, they show all the different receptors on a mast cell. I, oh, I had this from a journal. It, and, what, and what shocked me, Dr. Kaplan, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I, I showed this in diagrams to my patients because I didn't really fully understand this to the last couple of years when uh, this was coming out. But you look at the mast cell receptors. Now, again, I always, in my, in my basic learning, was like, okay, you look for what's called IgE, the allergy receptors. Oh, but the mast one. cells had receptors for viral proteins. They had receptors, corticotropin, which obviously has to do with cortisol and stress. So right. this, to me, was making sense. Why would somebody with a viral infection possibly have mast cell activation? Why would somebody who's got a chronic you know, stress issue, be breaking out, you know, and having mast cells activated, whether it's through hives, you know, through the skin or wheezing. Right. So what, yeah, what is your answer to that? I mean, first of all, the, the mast cell activation syndrome, uh, I think the most important uh, lesson that one could learn is that this is an area of active research. Okay. And it varies from physicians who don't believe it exists to those who treat it all, all of the time. And it's a tough one because it's the manifestations vary greatly. Some of the tests that we like to use that help us diagnose a mast cell that has been activated and secreting are normal. So, so how can you have mast cell activation syndrome when some of the main things that you wish to measure are not, not coming out, are not indicative of mast cell activation. Now, here's one hooker in that, and that is it is important when you catch it. Let's say you had an, an individual um, who has a hypotensive episodes, which certainly mastocytosis gets, and they itch, um, they have diarrhea, um, they, they have, um, uh, you, you would think it's like functional mastocytosis in other words they do exactly right more, more right. mast cells right but they're, but they're popping off right. but so but right so why can't right. that exist i, I don't know and why anybody not, even in the allergy yeah. community would dispute right. that you know because right. it makes sense i mean yeah. you know i mean not everything has to be more quantitatively it could it be takes, as you say more functional you know it takes a long time sometimes to figure out the cause of disease and also to have a good treatment for a disease and we're in the middle of this in the mastocytosis with all those receptors on the surface of the mast cell you can fantasize that any one of them is responsible in any particular patient for causing secretion of mast cells but the answer the, but the real truth of the matter is we do not know okay and those same receptors are present in my hive patients and yet I know that only one or two of them are relevant to the disease, and I know what they are. Okay. Now, it took like 25 years to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we are at a stage with, with mass so-called activation syndrome. I think the name is okay. Um, mm -hmm. Where we're trying to figure out. And what we're trying to figure out is what is a precipitant of symptoms? What is the best test that is indicative of secretion of these mast cells, and sometimes indirectly what works to block it, right? Because if you know what blocks it, well, then whatever you blocked must be contributing 
Well, just, uh, we're going to get to that a little bit because I'll yeah, tell you something direct. about practice. Yeah, it's indirect, but right. it is real data. Okay. okay, I want to ask you this, and this is really important because then I want to get onto your super specialty, chronic urticaria, which sure. all this is touched. But I want to ask you something again. I know, I know where you're coming from, and you know there are people in the functional medicine community have a whole different view. What's your view on histamine intolerance? Do you think that I exists? I never heard of it. You never heard of it? No. no. Okay, there There's are people. No, uh, uh, let me tell you two things that are are. Uh, um, uh, yeah, we don't see it. In the, I've been doing this all my life. So you haven't there, seen this in the literature. There's no such thing as mast cell intolerance. There also well, okay cannot uh, because you mentioned it earlier. Yeah, uh, you can't treat any mast cell or histamine disease by eating uh, foods that are low in histamine. Well, that's what I wanted to ask yeah. you too. That was my yeah, next no question. whatsoever. Okay, well, I, that's what I wanted to get you. I mean, there are a lot of patients who are convinced and I'm not saying I'm, a, you know, I, I I, have to tell you, I'm a little bit, I'm not as, you know, on your side completely on that because um, I have seen sometimes patients who, for example, are eating a lot of avocados or spinach, you know, high histamine foods that is something that's exacerbated their condition. But you're, you're, and I can, I know you're an academic and also a clinician. The same way that, as we do food challenges. If you have a food that you think is precipitating the symptom in the patient, yeah. the only way you're going to prove it is you have to do it blindly so that they challenge. don't know what eating. Okay. You have to do a challenge. Um, you have to have a control that is indis relatively indistinguishable from the thing that you are studying. Okay. And I can tell you, you know what you're going to find? It's not going to pan out. Okay. And then one other point, because then I want to go into the chronic care. So then yeah. things like DAO, like the enzyme that degrades histamine, you know, there are patients that are not to those DMAs? Yes. Yes. People are taking that or being told to take that because, um, again, trying to lower the histamine when they think right. that. There's not a shred of evidence, though, that if you take it, you do anything. Okay. Okay. Well, that's what I mean. I'm, you know, we're doing this podcast. I want to kind of hit the, you know, you know, I want to hear the hardcore angle from because there are people that do believe again, and there are yes. people who've written books. Don't gonna... forget the key to you, you just you just said a key word. What's that? I don't believe anything that I'm that I'm telling you about. It's not a belief. I either know because. Uh, I know that something is true from however I know okay. it. It might be uh, uh, my personal experience, stuff in the literature. It's published. It's been reviewed. Okay. Uh, and then it, when I don't know it, I say I don't know it. Right. Now, it's not that I don't believe that something might be true, because if I think so, and if I think it's worth my time, I may research it and try to find out whether it is true. But when somebody says, I believe this or that, this is me, that stuff has no meaning. Because it's, uh, no, I understand, but mm -hmm. yeah, but uh, 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 because it's, it's, um, you, you have to, the reason we do science is to t test a hypothesis as to whether something is true or not. It's not to prove something true, it's to test whether right. it's true. Right. And it's 50 50. Maybe it mm -hmm. is, maybe it isn't. And we devise our experiments so we're able to tell the difference. And there's, there is, I can't think of a disease that has more mythology associated with it than chronic urticaria, the one that I well, specialize. Yeah, well, that's what I want to get into. Okay, so I want to get into this because again, we're gonna we're gonna get some really good discussion on this because as you know, I, I have I'm not the super expert like you are, but I have background in this, and I want to relate it to our listeners. So I want to just start with this. You know, 
again, I'm in practice 30 years. You you surpassed me on that. But we both know that for many years, chronic urticaria was actually, its original name was idiopathic chronic right. urticaria because as doctors, we were the idiots. I mean, they really, oh, it, we, it, we right, did it. not know. I mean, less than, I mean, again, in the textbooks, as you know, they would Absolutely. say less than 5% of the patients that could be found the cause right. of chronic urticaria. But the, the word idiopathic also suggested that you really don't know much about it, right? Right, right. I'm just joking, but yeah. I mean, oh, one of my oh, teachers oh, at Columbia used to call it, said, he goes, idiopathic, it means we're the idiots. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> that was Dr. Beltrani. I have to give him a shout out. He was- Okay. He, by he the was, way, he was a good friend of mine. In the is York. he? Oh, Vince, he was Vince a great- Beltrani. I knew him Great well. teacher. Who, yeah, I think he was one of the five board-certified allergist dermatologists back in the day when they let you grandfather in, and he was just a tremendous teacher and a character, uh -huh. and you know, you never forget you never forget a great teacher uh and i know you've taught many residents some of them are friends of mine who said terrific things about you okay but and then you know what's interesting is in this field of chronic urticaria which now again i got one of my uh, allergy uh watch newsletters you know they've changed the name it's called chronic spontaneous urticaria okay. now Wait, let me let me you ask the question yeah, sure. okay because i want to set this up a certain way yeah and so now well, two things have happened in this area, which really, you know, chronic urticaria drives people crazy. I mean, it's really, it's, it's really debilitating. I've seen my share of cases. I know you've seen people probably from all over the country, you know, because you were the top expert. But two things have sort of changed that I see. One, again, as even mentioned, this allergy uh, throwaway journal I just got that they're kind of calling it now more of an autoimmune disease with different subtypes. Right. Um, as you know, too, there's new medic. I mean, for years, it was always just pile on the antihistamines. Now there's the, the, and, you know, the and, biologics. And, and misusing steroids. Oh, yeah. And you overusing steroids. But then there's the, the biologics back. now, like Zolaire has been approved. I don't know if Dupixin is yet, but it may come. So what I want to ask you is the setup. I mean, because, again, I know that you're not, not actively practicing now, but I'm sure you stay on top oh, of things. Oh, but, but uh, you know, we're talking decades of, of No, I know. So, but you've seen this shift now. So, because before it was a black box. Nobody knew, you know, you had people with chronic hives. You just piled on the antihistamines. And maybe if you got lucky, you know, I, I will have to share with you. I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope it makes you laugh and not feel bad. I, you know, back in the day when you were in New York, you and Dr. Soder in New York were like the people for chronic urticaria. You know, I mean, if, if anybody, you know, who had, was connected to the medical field said, and they suffered with chronic urticaria, they would have seen you or Dr. Soder, who was the dermatologist in New York. And it's funny, I ended up seeing a patient uh, who had seen, I don't know if he personally saw you because he, you know, he went to the Stony Brook clinic. Um, yeah. and Nick and I saw, were about 60 miles away from each right. other. And Nick, By the way, and, we overlapped at Harvard in our training. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, I have to tell you just like a quick funny story. So, um, so the patient that I saw having a horrible chronic hives or carrier, he had seen Dr. Soda for sure, who kind of like dismissed him. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, Nick wasn't, he just wasn't a good experience and gave him you know, a ton of antihistamine. He went to the Stony Brook. I'm not sure if he saw you or not. I, I don't remember, but again, you know, trying to manage him. So then he came to me. It turns out he was a personal friend of my dad's. So I had like a little bit of extra, you know, on the on the line uh -huh. here. So I sat there, you know, I took with the very extensive history, listening to the whole thing. And I'm saying to myself, now, what am I going to find that Dr. Kaplan or his group didn't find? I said, this is going to be tough. But anyway, he took out all of his medicines. We looked at everything. And I said, I don't know, this, you know, whatever. And then it was really funny. At the end, he said to me, 
I said, is this everything? I just got to have to know. He goes, oh, oh, wait a second. He goes, I, I take a baby aspirin from my heart. So I said, well, let's stop the, the baby aspirin. And, you know, he stopped it a week, two weeks later. He goes, Dr. Mitchell, you're a genius. <laughs> he goes, my heart's went away. And then, as you know, they think, but, but this is the other funny part of the story. Three years later, he calls me up. He goes, you're not going to believe this. The hives are back. And I'm like, oh, you know, I said, you know, I said, what, what happened? I said, did you take aspirin? He goes, no. I said, you know, his name was Bob. I said, Bob, think. Yeah. I said, what did you do? He goes, well, he goes, the only thing I could think of was the other night. He goes, my stomach was bad and I took an Alka-Seltzer. I said, take a look at the Alka-Seltzer. Yeah, sure, it had aspirin in it. Yeah. So, but those are the one in a thousand cases. Oh, I, I, maybe a hundred thousand. Okay, right. So I'm sorry, I, I, that was a long-winded, you know, yes. promotion no, of myself. No. But what, uh, what? How do you see urticaria, chronic urticaria now, and the role of antihistamines, the role of the biologics? You know, a lot of people are afraid to go on the biologics. So, t- take me through that. I mean, you're the you're okay. the person to best you know guide okay. anyone. First, first of all, let let us be uh, clear that all the evidence is that chronic or the chronic. Now, first, why do we add spontaneous? Uh, because from the patient's point of view, it appears spontaneous. Because when you see lots of patients, uh, uh, don't forget uh, if a, a patient thinks, well, for me, I think uh, X, X is uh, causing my hive. The next patient says it's Y, and it just keeps going and going and going. And um, what we have found is that it's an autoimmune skin disease. So how do I explain this to a patient? I say that you have an overactive immune system in a very specific way in which you are making antibodies, among other things, that are attacking your skin. So I say this is an internal skin disease And therefore, there is nothing externally that causes it. So stop looking for a cause because you cannot find it. So the first thing is uh, uh, that means it is not a food and it is not a food additive and it's not something you're doing and it's not even being stressed out. It's nothing that you are doing. So, And as you know, you have patients who go to bed at night completely clear, and they wake up in the morning covered from head to foot, right? And they weren't snacking or doing anything. So, but now we also know a couple of the antibodies that we actually think are causing it. So these antibodies interact with the surface, with receptors, like you said, on the surface of mast cells and make them trigger. And you can do it in the test tube by adding, I can add the serum of a patient uh, to histamine containing cells from a normal and make them fire off. And uh, so uh, that conceptually is is uh, the way to think of it. An autoimmune skin disease in which the, uh, an autoimmune disease in which the target is the skin. And the specific target is the mast cells that are in the skin. So they are being activated by stuff we kind of know something about. So uh, the simplest hive, um, uh, well, I don't want to get all of it. We stick with chronic spontaneous urticaria, that particular, which is defined as having persisting hives for more than six weeks. And um, you take uh, antihistamine. I told you high doses are needed to get a reasonable effect in most people. 
But, but isn't that also just a band-aid though too? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if it's chronic, if it's an autoimmune disease, yeah, antihistamines don't help an autoimmune disease. No, but they quiet it down in about they do, right. I I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. So but okay. But Zolaire completely messes up the interaction of these antibodies with the surface of the mast cell. And as you know, Zolaire was marketed um, for asthma initially. So uh, and and the initial study, what you would call proof of concept uh, for Zole was done. I did it personally. Oh, really? And from and from my first dozen patients, in which seven out of twelve stopped cold their hives, four improved. So eleven out of twelve had a good response, and one failed. And uh, uh, I told the, the pharmaceutical who man manufactured Zolaire at the time, there's no way this is a, a chance occurrence. And it went from there to phase two to phase three, which involved three studies with 300 patients each, a total of 900 patients. And then it was approved by our FDA, then by Europe, and it went all over the world. So Zolaire, if you take antihistamine failures and... Um, Zolaire will treat successfully about 70% of those folks. Wow. So I did a calculation that between antihistamine and Zolaire, we treat about 82% of chronic spontaneous urticaria successfully. And then we have a backup molecule that's a little harder to use, but it's the way to go now. New stuff is coming. But if you fail both those drugs, the drug of choice is cyclosporin. Ooh, that's just potent. I mean, they use it for transplant patients. You do, but we use a much lower dose. Mm -hmm. we use it safely, uh, certainly for a year or two. Yeah, uh, its success rate is as good as Zolaire, but it's but you have to be more careful. So you have to uh, measure blood pressure and kidney function about every six weeks. What do you that think about What do you think about gamma globulin? I know it's very oh, expensive. That's a easy. It's an easy one. Don't do it. it Why? Won't work. Won't work. The only three things that are approved currently are antihistamines, Zolaire, and cyclosporin. Mm. I have a long experience with cyclosporin because um, we we realized that it works prior to the Zolaire stuff. So there was a year or two when I was taking everybody off steroid and using cyclosporin. And let me tell you, with side effects notwithstanding, it was much, much better than being on steroid. And you, you have to be careful. Um, but it worked. And yeah. uh, patients thought that the stuff was great. But but uh, uh, as I said, you have to follow the patient carefully. And uh, the two side effects are blood pressure and kidney. And uh, in, my, in my patients, if I saw a side effect, I simply strapped the drug immediately. And I can tell you that every patient that did have a side effect, maybe it was 10, let's say 10% of the people that I would, uh, if I, when I stopped it within three weeks, they were back to their normal. And then I had to figure out what I was going to do next. But it's interesting, uh, Dean, that the dermat, that the dermatologists have no problem with cyclosporin because they use immune suppressive drugs for pemphigus, pemphigoid right. all the time. Right. Yeah, it's going to be what you're comfortable with. It's true. They have no, the allergist has no experience with right. it. Right. Well, it's, it matters. Yeah. You got the dangerous drug. Conversely, the allergists use Zolaire all the time for their asthmatics and embraced it for urticaria right away. And the dermatologists are afraid of 
uh, of right. Uh, well, it's, Folate, I, yeah, there's a black box warning on it that three percent of patients can have anaphylaxis. Right, right. And no, all, all and all the patients, by the way, who had the anaphylaxis of those ninety uh, percent were asthmatics. The urticaria patients. It's a really rare incidence of an allergic reaction to the Zolan. Did so, you really find that it was very effective? I mean, I, I'm sure you did, but I have to tell you my own personal experience, because, you know, again, I see the patients that get referred to me who've been on it. It's much lower than 70%. It seems to me like 30% of the people get better. Oh, no, but, no. Yeah, the okay. 70% is a hard figure, but uh, okay. how do you come upon it? Uh, uh, first of all, you have to see a, a, lot, a lot of patients. Yeah, uh, I see uh, my fair share, but... But, it, but, you know, we're talking a 1,000 patients that were yeah. done in this study. And, okay. And, that's all right. and, and, and there are lots of people in practice who have found something similar. Now, I'll tell you one thing that is happening uh, with Zolaire. Uh, uh, and um, people are, you know, it happens all the time. I mean, you're a physician. You can use something off-label. Correct. Uh, and, and it's not an illegal thing. No, it's you're trying so, to help your patients. So for, for some people um, who would like to defer using the cyclosporin, instead of giving the Zolaire monthly, they're doing it every two weeks. And they are finding, you know, that another increment in success rate in treating the patients is is seen so uh um uh and they are and they, it is published there, there are some who just raised the dose instead of uh, 300 they they went higher um others didn't change the dose they simply gave it more frequently now this is a minority right the the, the vast majority are on the, on the 300 milligram recommended dose and doing beautifully. Do most of the people who respond have the auto IG receptor antibody? You know, that's a blood test that you can order or that doesn't really help? Uh, be, uh, uh, I think it helps, but in a different way. Uh, uh, people, uh, people with chronic urticaria right. who do not, uh, by the common test, have this particular antibody Still respond to Zolaire. Okay. The percentage. So, so, so it doesn't really matter, but it. The percentage uh, might be a bit less, actually. Uh -huh. uh, never, nevertheless, um, uh, it you uh, it's not black and white, so that having the test tells you what you ought to do, and therefore the test is of interest to us, but it is not recommended for routine use. It isn't. No, okay. it's not. But let me tell you one thing that is, I think, maybe helpful, and it's in the literature. And that, that is you can group patients, you know, Zolia binds IgE, right? Right. Those who have very, very low IgE don't respond well. Hmm. That's important. Okay? Well, a lot of chronic urticary patients, as you know, tend to have, for some, I don't know, for some bizarre reason, have low IgEs. They're not your classic. Some, some but the vast majority are slightly above the normal, if, statistically. Okay. Uh, 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 not as uh, you, you know in the allergic diseases we see in terms of high IgE, atopic dermatitis is number one, right. asthma is number two, right. allergic rhinitis is number three, and urticaria is number four. Mm -hmm. uh, but within the urticaria population, there's a subpopulation that have low IgE, and they will not respond well to Zolan. That's interesting. So okay, that is that's, interesting. That's that's so, a great that's so a great I pearl. Think in the next a next guideline. You know that comes out. Uh, I think maybe an IgE might uh, be included as you ought to measure it. You know what I mean? Right, but for the opposite reason, you know, meaning yeah, if it's low, it's not going to work. Idea, it gives you some yeah. idea 
ahead of time whether Zolaire is going to work for you. Well, can I ask you a question too? Because again, I'm not familiar about these subtypes. You know, do, yeah. what is the, is there any main difference between type one and type two B? I mean, what is? Oh this? yes, it's a different antibody. It's so a different two, antibody. Yeah. Okay, the two B is an IgG antibody that activates complement. Mm-hmm. And the type one is truly an IgE antibody to something. So the type one is more like autoallergy. You know what I mean? Like you mm-hmm. have allergic reaction to to something on the surface of the mast cell. Can or a clinician it, order order the antibodies to differentiate oh these two? No, no. The, I mean, because the, you know, the this one, is like academic. The one, you, the one that you refer to, um, yeah. you refer to one where you can send the blood out and get the antibody. Yeah. Did you not? Yes, that that's p- right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That particular antibody is the 2B. It's the IgG anti receptor antibody. Oh, that's it, what that one is. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, let, let me be specific. Uh, yeah. uh, and that is IgG anti IgE <laughs> receptor. All right. For my listeners, so this, hang in IgG, there. this is very technical. <laughs> yeah. It cross links the IgE yeah. receptor, which is what activates mast cells. Okay. And the okay. type one, which is IgE, allergic antibody against something in skin. So it's like having allergy to yourself. Okay. And and those two together is what I'm referring to as being autoimmune. It's an overactive immune system making these antibodies that activate mast cells. That's a a general statement that covers both of them. Um, I want to ask you too, you know, again, this article, and we know too before, you know, with, in, with chronic urticaria, they always would recommend, you know, do thyroid testing, I guess, looking for autoimmune Hashimoto's. Yes. Uh, and this he, article uh, was interested too. They mentioned, I wasn't really aware of this. They mentioned doing a D-dimer test, you know, which usually has to do with blood clots. And, yes. and now they're even talking about the basophil activation test. So in spite of the t- fact that, that D-dimer is high in people when they are having chronic or symptoms of chronic urticaria, that they break mm-hmm. out in hives and D-dimer goes up. It means that they are activating the enzymes in the clotting system, but they're not clotting. They're not okay. having thrombosis. Okay. And um, uh, because I could rattle off about 20 diseases in which D-dimer is elevated, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's it's not specific. So you don't have to be concerned, though. I don't think it wouldn't like if I saw somebody with a positive deep dimer, I'm ordering ultrasounds of their ankle, of their legs, you know, to make sure they're blood clot. So don't order it because it's not helpful. Okay. Uh, I want to jump back to one thing, too, before we kind of start to wrap up. But, you know, one of the things I've used uh, in the cases that I believe have mast cell activation is I started using, there was actually a doctor at Columbia. uh, Unfortunately, he passed away. He was like really considered a top expert in this area. He was was actually a hematologist. He was using compounded ketotifin, which, as you know, is a mast cell stabilizer. And, you know, the other medicine we have which we use for different things is chromium sodium, which can be taken orally for people right. that have mastocytosis, like if they have ulcers, in, whatever. Yeah, huge, so, huge doses, but but it, it had been used for the GI symptoms of mastocytosis, right. trying to quiet right. down the diarrhea. When, we're giving it, when I'm giving it orally, I'm yep. trying to deal with a lot That's of things. That's what you're trying to do. But I want to ask you this. because ketotifen is just a fan. I can tell you it's a fan. I've used it. It's a, it's a, it's not available in the U.S., but I, I used to. Well, you can get it compounded. You know, I get it compounded. Get it compounded or, or imported from Canada, actually. Uh, but be that as it may, I used it years ago for chronic spontaneous urticaria, and basically it behaved like another antihistamine. Okay, but this is what I want to ask you, though, but just in general about the differential, because I, 
think I understand this, but I want to be sure. So when we're talking about an antihistamine, like you know, like an Allegra, Claritin, I'm just using the brand right. names. You know, the, I I assume that they mop up the histamine that's been released from the cell. They don't, nope. No, what they do they do? Forget. They block the. What do they do exactly? They block. They bind to the receptor so that the histamine can't activate the cell. Oh, so then what is the difference then between quote a mast cell stabilizer like chromalin or ketotifin, which I I pictured stabilizing the cell and not letting the histamine that be that, is, that is correct. First of all, we don't have a good one. Uh, uh, you, you, you well, what is the, the difference between antihistamine and mast cell stabilizer? I guess that's what I'm trying to differentiate. Yes, yeah, and, and I'm saying that that, that like uh, a chromalin. Mm -hmm. um, in, when study, first of all, those two, you know, in terms of mast cell stabilization, they're really weak. So many of us don't use them. But okay. be that as it may, your concept is correct. Um, a mast cell stabilizer is something that somehow interacts with the mast cell to yep. inhibit it from secreting. Right. And the antihistamine, the, his, the mast cell has already secreted. The histamine is out there and you're trying to block its effect by having on other cells on, on the other organs right at the I other organ. okay. right well obviously ideally it would be best the mast cell stabilizer without releasing the the, the right. like I, I made the example for patients just the other day i said to you say to me can you explain this and i guess i was thinking quickly and i said well you know what it's like if you had a bucket of water and the bucket turned over the antihistamine comes in and mops up so the rest of the area doesn't get wet but if you have a mast cell stabilizer it keeps the the bucket from tipping right. over May I? Yes, go ahead, please. Here's the future. Is is I know of a number of studies that are ongoing, of course, but preliminary data are in, and there's some good news there because some of the drugs that are being looked at really inhibit mast cell secretion. So they would be like, uh, like a stabilizer, if you will, but. I just I, I I prefer to say inhibit the secretion of mast cells, so they're acting on the machinery inside the mast from secreting, and that's the way of the future. I think the next okay. few the next few approved molecules may be first for urticaria, and then they'll be tried like in mast cell activation syndrome, which is a no-brainer if it if it works in that fashion. That would be something good for it to be used, even more than mastocytosis. Mast cell activation syndrome would be a good one uh, to try it. But I think uh, it's being studied in chronic urticaria. Some of the data are really looking good. I, I am optimistic that one or more of these um, uh, could be approved. They so far have a good side effect to profile. So if you had a really good one in the sequence of antihistamine, Zolaire, cyclosporin, if you had something that had the efficacy of cyclosporin without the side effects, you could easily substitute it. So that that may be, I, I think, the way of the future. I think that's coming down the pike in the next two to three years. I want to ask you one more thing, too. And again, this might be a little bit out of the area where you're very comfortable with, and I know you know a lot of things, but... You know, something that I've been dealing with the last 10, 15 years of my practice, and and I want to just make the segue into this. You know, as you know, you're familiar a little bit with celiac disease, and I actually, um, yeah. I've, I've I'm had, not I know. against the enterologist, but I'm no, I know, I know, but you know, but and it's funny. I had on Alessio Fasano from Harvard, who's like one of the experts on this. But you know, one of the most interesting things about celiac disease, which what it's taught us, is that like he likes to say in some of his lectures, 
what happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut, you know? And, and as we know, celiac has many manifestations, you know, where you can obviously be between anemia, but there's also dermatological conditions, like where you get dermatitis or pediformis, pediformis fancy, right, right, a certain right. kind of lesions. So what I want to ask you, because again, I've seen this a little bit in my practice too, because I do a lot of also like functional medicine along with my immunology, the role of the gut microbiome potentially yeah. in urticaria. Yeah, um, I, I, again, do you see that as a potential future way of treating chronic urticaria by somehow getting the microbiome more in balance? I, I think that the microbiome, uh, biome, which is certainly being investigated in all of allergy, mm -hmm. uh, and and also right. uh, ideas of of an imbalance, even underlying why some people are allergic and some people are not. It, it's, I think it's very important. It's also very preliminary. It's a tough one. And we, a lot of work is being done. Okay. I, would, I would say to you that it will help our understanding of asthma. Uh, this is, now, this is my bias. Okay, this is, I'm, this is what I think might be true, is I think it will help us understand aspects of asthma to a greater degree than urticaria. Okay. Okay. And, and if things, and the way things are going in terms of the treatment of urticaria, if, if we were having this discussion 10 years from now, when I think we'll have maybe two uh, additional drugs, I, I would say from a therapeutic point of view, it won't matter. Now, under, from an understanding point of view, why anybody ever gets the disease, uh, maybe it will, like, why does the immune system in some people turn on in a particular right. way? And there's where... Uh, well, a lot of autoimmunity is being yeah. looked at, a microbiome dysfunction, That's because, right. you know, and so I, I believe, you know, it's interesting, uh, again, this is a little bit of an aside, but I want to throw it in because yeah. I think it's related. You know, when I see, uh, which I do, some of these kids with multiple food allergies, um, you know, I truly, and again, there's like almost like no family history of that. And then yeah. I will tell you, there's a certain percentage of these patients that either the mother took antibiotics during the pregnancy because unfortunately she got an infection or uh -huh. which some studies have shown in the first year of life, they were given a lot of antibiotics right. you know, for infections. And I think it that's changed the microbiome. Completely. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, so to me, that's again, another fascinating area yeah. Yeah. where this could be emanating from. But I want to ask you what the one last thing we're going to get to. I, mm -hmm. I recall, so we were supposed to do this in uh, in June or July and I got, I had to have a surgery. And I remember, I think you were coming up to Stony Brook to give a lecture, but to me it was interesting. It wasn't on your usual stuff. So what are you working on? I, what, was it related to something with Alzheimer's? I, I, I'm trying to remember, or what, what, what new things are you looking at? There were two two things, um, uh, and we were just trying trying to uh, present uh, some data. Uh, are you familiar with hereditary angioedema? Sure. You, you must be. Sure. And you know the molecule of interest is bradykinin. Bradykinin, that's uh, what you would work on, right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and they have and swelling, but they never really never have hives. That's they right, right. Okay. And it's really, uh, 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 you know, um, it's, it's an important disease. It's rarer, uh, but, you know, they get some very severe uh, swelling that can be potentially fatal. So it's a big deal. Right. Well, this bradykinin molecule, um, I was uh, presenting data, and this is suggestive only, um, but uh, in anaphylaxis, you know, people who have the kind of allergic reaction where everything goes and you could die. Um, uh, I was showing how 
subsequent to mast cell activation, the bradykinin system can be then secondarily activated. And if, if it really is massively activated, you could get many of the severe symptoms of anaphylaxis, including why people go into shock. Hmm. So I was uh, in that was just showing the data. Here's the, here are the data. Yeah. It is not proven, but the data are okay. We know for sure that in this particular circumstance, it is activated. In Alzheimer's disease, the plaque, uh, 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 the protein that makes the plaques in Alzheimer's disease um, aggregates. And we have shown, uh, and this was our lab's work, but it's many, a few decades back when, uh, uh, when we were first studying Alzheimer's disease, the aggregated protein activates the bradykinin system beautifully in vitro, in the oh, test. Wow. And, and so I was saying, hey, you know, here's Alzheimer's disease. We really uh, are, we, we, haven't, we haven't hit uh, a therapy. You know, there's a couple of two new ones and, and they may help a little, um, but back way back then, certainly we had nothing that was working. And we were, it's a devastating disease. We we're working on it a long time. Why, why were you working on it? That's kind of like out of your scope of practice, I would think. But I, but I, I work, uh, I, I'm a bradykinin specialist. Oh, and, so that's what brought you over to that. That's what brought me that over was the to that. Uh -huh. Right. And I, I, I thought that, the, you know, that, that, uh, knowing what does activate the bradykinin system, I was looking at some of these alternative things that are in the human body associated with disease to ask whether they might be. Oh, that's so, really interesting. See that? That's a and, great and, example, Doctor yes, Kaplan, of somebody expanding me, their, yeah, you know, the their point reach. I was making and presenting it to the people is we need to look at everything. Yeah, and, and don't just assume if it's not your favorite molecule, it's got nothing. Right. To do. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're look at the suffering and the misery. That's, oh, absolutely. Uh, that's that's an, right. So I, Imagine, I, say, I would love the headlines. Right. Allergy researcher gets breakthrough right. in Alzheimer's. He's no stone unturned. I love that. And that I love that. There, and I was just presenting the data. Okay. Nice to people to think that way. I love that. Oh, I love that. La okay, last question for you, because again, I, I have to always get a little extra out of this too. Epinephrine, something that you know we use for severe allergic emergencies. Yes, like, um, like anaphylaxis. Right. And the good news is I'm telling patients it's on the horizon. There's going to be a nasal spray probably sometime in the spring. It should have been out already, but it's not. But my question to you again is epinephrine, how does it majorly work on mast cells? Again, does it constrict them, bind them? Why is it so oh, effective? epinephrine has two effects in the body one it constricts the blood vessels right so okay. that they don't leak okay, okay. So, so part of, of all of the allergic diseases is particularly urticaria the vessels open th that makes things look red they dilate right. and then they leak okay. and, and then you get fluid and fluid accumulation mm. so epinephrine antagonizes that okay in the mast cell okay epinephrine uh, uh, stimulates something that is called cyclic AMP. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And it will do that uh, to a mast cell. And when you raise cyclic AMP, you depress secretion. It's reciprocal. Uh -huh. So it's decreasing all those mediators that it's, come out and cause almost, all the horrible things. Right. It's, it, it, it's like that mast cell suppressant that you were alluding to. And epinephrine does do that. 
It suppresses the secretion of mast cells and it and it constricts the vessels at the end organ. Okay. Well, Dr. Kaplan, this has been a privilege for me. I've been a fan of yours for many years. I actually got to attend well, one of your you. lectures probably 30 years ago at the Nassau County Medical Center when you were speaking about oh, yeah. histamine complexes. See, I, I never forgot it. And of course I knew your name. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. I hope my listeners appreciate your viewpoints and your expertise. Um, so thank you so much. I really yes, appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. Nice, nice to see you.